Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Thursday, October 5th. Former New Jersey Congressman Tom Malinowski is in the news for multiple reasons right now. As a senior fellow with the McCain Institute think tank, he is in Ukraine now and has an opinion piece on Politico on a way to end the war there that could possibly bypass Putin and bring both peace and justice. Malinowski lost his House seat to Republican Tom Kane Jr. in New Jersey's most uh, contested swing district last year, the 7th congressional district in New Jersey, as many of you who live in New, in New Jersey and certainly in that area know. He says he won't seek a rematch next year, but his name is among those being mentioned as a possible appointed successor to Senator Bob Menendez if Menendez is forced to resign over his corruption indictment. Malinowski is one of the many New Jersey Democrats calling on Menendez to step down And in his case, it's not just because of the alleged corruption per se. For Malinowski, it's very much because of the human rights and U.S. foreign policy implications of the alleged corruption. So by way of background, I'm going to read a little bit from Tom Malinowski's bio page on the McCain Institute site. Some of you who live in that district um, know this, but many of you don't. Malinowski was born in communist Poland during the height of the Cold War and emigrated with his mother to the United States when he was six years old. From 1994 to 2001, Malinowski served as a speechwriter for Secretaries of State Warren Christopher and Madeleine Albright, and as a senior director on President Clinton's National Security Council. As chief Washington advocate for Human Rights Watch, he worked with Senator John McCain to end America's use of torture after the 9-11 attacks. He later served as President Obama's assistant secretary Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. It's all relevant to how he sees the Menendez case. Tom, thanks for coming on with us again. Welcome back to WNYC. Thanks for having me, Brian. Can I start right in on the Menendez issue, and then we'll get to your Ukraine article uh, as we go, and also some House of Representatives politics, which is obviously in the news. Why do you think Menendez, pleading not guilty and innocent until proven guilty, should resign. He is, of course, entitled to a presumption of innocence in the criminal case against him, as as would any American accused of a serious crime. But we have a higher standard for elected officials. Uh, We the the evidence presented in the indictment, the overwhelming evidence that suggests that uh, he was taking huge amounts of money and gold bars and, and cars from people who were trying to influence him, apparently on behalf of a foreign government, a foreign dictatorship. Egypt it is enough for me to conclude that he, he can't represent us in Washington as he's fighting these criminal charges. So um, most of us in, in uh, the Democratic party in New Jersey have come together in in asking him to do what I think is the right thing and resign. Do you see implications for human rights in Egypt in what Menendez allegedly did? It it looks to me like the Egyptian government, even as it was taking $1.3 billion a year from the United States, was running an influence operation against the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. 
And I, that's very disturbing. I, I, during this time, was the, the chairman of the Egypt Human Rights Caucus in the House of Representatives, a bipartisan group that felt that that we that it diminishes the United States to be so close and so reliant to on a, a brutal military dictatorship in the Middle East. And we were passing bill after bill in the House to try to restrict the military aid to Egypt and call more attention to the human rights abuses there. A lot of those bills died in the US Senate. And I don't know what role Senator Menendez played in the back rooms where those decisions were, were made, but I think almost everything that went through his committee now looks a little bit suspect because we, we, we know he well apparently had this corrupt relationship with the Egyptians. So I'm, I'm glad we're moving past that. There's a new chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee, Senator Cardin of Maryland, with whom I've worked very closely in the past. And his first decision uh, as chairman was to put a hold, a block on $300 million of aid to Egypt over human rights. So it's a new day. Why put a hold on that aid to Egypt over human rights? I'm sure most of our listeners don't know what the particular concerns are. And it's ironic that an alleged uh, act of corruption by New Jersey Senator, who was chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, is bringing this to light. Americans might not be focusing on it very much were it not for that, with all the domestic issues uh, that we all have to deal with. And, you know, the war in Ukraine uh, as the, the dominant foreign policy issue these days. Um, so, what are your main human rights concerns with respect to Egypt uh, that would lead you to, I guess, support Chairman Cardin's decision to suspend that aid? There are tens of thousands of political prisoners in Egypt. There is brutal, terrible, gruesome torture in Egyptian prisons, including of people who did nothing more than tweet out something critical of the country's military rulers. They... They've gone after Americans as well, American citizens imprisoned uh, in Egypt. There are Americans in the United States, Egyptian Americans who've been threatened and, and intimidated by the Egyptian regime. And, you know, sometimes we do business with thugs around the world, but these thugs in Egypt, I don't think do very much for the aid they receive from the United States. They've not been helpful on Russia and Ukraine. They. Uh, didn't help us when we were fighting ISIS and every other partner of ours in the Middle East uh, contributed to that effort. So they, it, it's it's a terrible bargain, in my view, for the American people. And I think it undermines our message. Our message in Russia is that we're helping democracy defeat dictatorship. That's our message when we stand up to China and a lot of other adversaries around the world. I, I, I think we got to be a little bit more consistent. Are you concerned at all about the Biden administration's um, push to get the Saudis to recognize Israel? Uh, from what I've read, and New York Times columnist Tom Friedman, who's very Middle East concerned and Middle East experienced, wrote a, a column on this recently, um, to get the Saudis to recognize Israel, normalize relations with Israel without enough pressure on Israel uh, to do more toward a two-state solution um, with the Palestinians. 
like if the United States is pushing the Arab countries to normalize with Israel, to form a unified front against Iran, which is, I think, one of the U.S. main foreign policy concerns in that context. Um, But it leaves the Palestinians without those Arab countries to withhold normalization until something happens for the Palestinians, um, that maybe that's not the morally correct choice either for the United States. It ignores one of the key interests there too much. Perhaps uh, people are alleging. What's your view on that? Saudi Arabia should have recognized Israel decades ago. If Saudi Arabia were to recognize Israel now, that would be great. If it recognized Israel alongside a resumption of the Israeli peace process with the Palestinians, a resumption of the two-state solution, that would be even better. And it would be a huge breakthrough, a huge win for the Biden administration if they could broker that kind of deal. The problem is that the Saudis are also demanding something else. They are demanding, as part of this deal, a defense treaty with the United States that would be akin to what we have with our NATO allies, with Japan, with South Korea, a legally binding promise that the United States will defend Saudi Arabia forever if it is attacked. That's the part I'm concerned about, and that doesn't make sense to me. We we have these defense treaties with only a small number of countries in the world. They're all democracies. They're all countries that to one extent or another share our values or we have a long history of working together for for common interests. And Saudi Arabia is not that. Saudi Arabia, as I I mentioned a few moments ago, is as we speak trying to undermine uh, our interest in helping Ukraine defeat Russia. They are hurting American consumers. It is a brutal dictatorship run by a man who I think is a dangerous sociopath, MBS, that was responsible for the kidnapping and beheading of a journalist based in the United States, Jamal Khashoggi. Why would we want to, in effect, marry Saudi Arabia for life without demanding concessions from the Saudis on all of these things that are important to the United States beyond what's happening in Israel. So a deal would be great. They should recognize Israel yesterday. Progress on the Palestinian front, absolutely. But I would say no to a defense treaty between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. So listeners, if you're just joining us for this conversation with former New Jersey congressman and longtime human rights advocate Tom Malinowski, he was President Obama's Assistant Secretary of State for Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. He's now a senior fellow with the McCain Institute think tank. And in that context, he is in Ukraine right now. And he's got an article on Politico called Here Are Three Ways to End the War in Ukraine, one might actually work. So do you want to walk us through the three, uh, the two that you think are possible that you're not as in love with, and the third that might actually work? Uh, Sure, but I I hope we get back to what's happening right now, because we are uh, in a very critical situation both in Ukraine and in the U.S. Congress. Well, you can uh, you can start right Ukraine. now, or you can start our Ukraine section with that, and we will get back to the U.S. Congress. Sure. Uh, but, but go ahead. What is happening right now in Ukraine that you want to focus on? 
so let, let's let's step back because we have a decision to make as a country and I want to make sure everyone understands um, the stakes. We're, we're at a point where mostly with their courage, but also with our help, the, the Ukrainians have beaten back a Russian invasion. They, they've taken back about 50% 50 of the territory that Russia seized in 2022, destroyed about half the Russian army in the process. And they've done this without the United States having to put a single one of our soldiers at risk at a cost to American taxpayers, because they are asking us for ammunition, basically, at a cost to American taxpayers of the equivalent of basically one uh, New York Giants football ticket per American per year. And they need that help if they're going to have any chance of winning. And right now, that um, that possibility, which would be a real possibility if we continue to help them, is jeopardized by the complete breakdown that we've seen in the House of Representatives. Um, most Americans still support Ukraine. Every single poll demonstrates that. Most members of Congress still support Ukraine. If we had a vote in the US Senate on more help to Ukraine, it would win four to one. In the House, it would win three to one with all the Democrats and about half the Republicans. But there has been a complete breakdown in, in, in the Republican Party in the House with first a weak Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, who was afraid to put the question of Ukraine to a vote because he was afraid he would lose his speakership if he did. And then of course he did anyway. And now no speaker, which means the House of Representatives is not functioning at all. And a leadership battle in the Republican Party that is likely to bring to power a new speaker who will also not want to risk dividing his party with a vote on Ukraine. So we've got to focus on this. Again, most Americans, I think, want us to do the right thing and help people in Ukraine who are not just fighting for their freedom and security. They're very, very much fighting for our freedom and security as well. Um, Can you we linger for a minute on that thought and make that case? Because I know there are polls that indicate that American support, uh, not just on the far pro-Putin right, but in general is starting to decline in terms of continuing to send billions and more billions and more billions um, to fight a war in Ukraine uh, that seems to be in long-term stalemate and is just going to keep drawing on American taxpayers when they don't perhaps see the end point of what you just laid out. If Putin wins in Ukraine, is he really going to go on then and attack Poland and try to rebuild the whole Soviet empire? And even if he does that with a few more countries, how does it threaten America's national security. Can you make that case a little bit or those cases? Absolutely. But first, just a factual point. It's so important for us to remember that, yeah, we've spent billions of dollars. 60% of what we have spent to help Ukraine is being spent inside the United States. We are sending them old weapons off the shelf, and then we are spending the money to purchase new weapons for the U.S. military which actually creates economic opportunity inside the United States. So this 
the, this talking point that we're sending billions and billions of dollars to Ukraine, I think people need to have a little bit more nuance on that. In terms of our national interest, um, would Putin uh, continue if he conquered Ukraine? Well, he says he would. Is he trying to reconstitute the Soviet empire and threaten countries that are members of NATO? Well, he says that that's what his intention is. And like in the last 10 years, he's pretty much done everything he said that he's going to do, including things that sounded crazy to most Americans. So that's number one. If, if he conquers Ukraine, there will be a threat to NATO and we will be faced with a situation that's much more dangerous and much more expensive than what we face today. The Ukrainians are fighting to protect us from that. They are the ones spilling blood. All they want from us is ammunition. Number two, there are other great powers in the world that are watching this. China has indicated, uh, the leader of China has said that he wants to reunify uh, with Taiwan, quote unquote, by force if necessary. And there's no question that um, China is watching the situation to see whether the United States and our allies really do have the staying power to support an ally under attack. If we give up on Ukraine after a year and a half of actual progress, where our side is winning the war, how credible would our promise be to defend Taiwan, to defend Japan, to defend South Korea? We would be much more likely to face a war with China in one of those places in the next few years that would be a huge threat to our national security, to the lives of our troops, and to the economy that we all depend on. I cannot think of a more clear national interest case than the one that exists for helping Ukraine, again, with money and ammunition, not with American lives. So let me ask you now, as the clock is ticking down our time, to jump to that scenario that you laid out in Politico, which begins with the United States giving the Ukrainian military whatever it needs to advance as far as possible in the current counteroffensive. And then at an appropriate point next year, Ukraine would declare a pause in offensive military operations. Want to pick it up there? Sure. So how does this war end? It's a question that everybody is asking. The The best way would be for Ukraine to win outright. They The counteroffensive succeeds. They retake all their territory, including Crimea. And that would be great. And we should give them everything that they need with our allies to make that possible. But we also have to be realistic that it may not happen because the Russians have established these very tough defensive lines. And the Russians have one big advantage over Ukraine. They're bigger. They've got 150 million people. Ukraine only has 30. Putin can keep calling up, uh, mobilizing troops. He doesn't care about uh, sacrificing the lives of young Russians. Ukraine is a democracy, an open society. They, they can't, they can't uh, do what Russia is doing. They, they can't send hundreds of thousands of their people to their deaths on the battlefield. And so the alternative that, uh, that I've suggested is that if the Ukrainians make this decision, no one should push them to do it. Um, at some point, uh, perhaps next year, they essentially freeze the conflict. They, they say, we've taken as much ground as we can in this phase. 
They shift their focus to defending the territory they've liberated and to joining NATO and the European Union as a strong democracy, in which at which point we should offer NATO membership. That would give Ukraine the security, the long-term security they crave. Every Ukrainian I speak to, they have different views about how the war should end, but what they all say is, we want this to be the last time we have to fight Russia. They're willing to do it now, but they don't want their kids and their grandkids to have to do it. The most important thing for them is long-term security that comes with being members of NATO. For that to happen, though, there has to be at least a pause in the conflict because we're probably not going to let them into NATO while they're continuing this offensive operation. So that's an option. And, and again, we shouldn't force them to do anything, but I, I, I would uh, argue that we should present that to them as a choice that they could make. We would be willing to do our part if they were willing to do theirs. We have two minutes left. Last question, turning to congressional politics. Um, am I reading right that you have ruled out a rematch against Republican Congressman Tom Kane Jr., who defeated you last year in the 7th Congressional District in New Jersey. And Correct. Uh, so tell us why and tell us what you think the path is for Democrats to take back the House, potentially, um, which they lost very largely in the New York metro area. I think Democrats will take back the House. Look, the contrast is so stark. Look look at what we were able to do in the last Congress with a very narrow Democratic majority. We, we passed the infrastructure bill. We passed the CHIPS Act to, to bring advanced manufacturing back to uh, America. We kept our promise to enable Medicare to negotiate lower drug prices for our seniors. We passed a climate bill that's going to make America, not China, the leader of the world in clean energy. We came together across party lines to help Ukraine beat back this Russian invasion. We passed bills to help our veterans. And I could go on and on and on. And look what's happened with this Republican House of Representatives that, that just has devolved into a complete dysfunctional circus. They're, they're not even able, the Republicans aren't even able to elect their own speaker. And I, I just think Americans want they, they want Washington to work for them. And we're never going to agree with 100% of what the Democrats do or what the Republicans do. But I think we want grownups, we want adults who are serious about governing, who are serious about results, not a bunch of attention-seeking social media stars who bring the place to a grinding halt, as the Republicans have done in the House. Certainly my constituents in the 7th District weren't bargaining on that when they voted for a Republican member of Congress. We'll see what happens next year. Former New Jersey Congressman Tom Malinowski, now a senior fellow with the McCain Institute think tank, joining us from Ukraine. Thank you so much for giving us so much time. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time. <music>